Hey all you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello and welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about all things Dragon Age. I am one of your hosts, Austin, also known as Teacup. And I'm your other host, Shelby or Sheikup. And we are back after a week with our patrons, and we are back on course for our series following conflicts in Thetis or the Exalted Marches, because that's a lot of the conflicts in Thetis are the Exalted Marches. Last time we were talking about the Kinari Wars. Yeah, so last time was a part one to kind of Cunari conflicts in Thetis. So last week we talked about, or I guess two weeks ago, because we had a patron chat in the middle, um, we talked about like the Cunari's basically first excursion into m- mainland Thetis. So we talked about, you know, how they were able to kind of just bulldoze through everyone um, and how everyone in Thetis was not expecting them. And so there were a lot of wars and a lot of pushback in regard to that. And today we're going to talk about kind of the second half of those conflicts, which is when everybody kind of unites in mainland Thetis to fight back against the Kunari and they call multiple exalted marches against them. Sounds like it's an interesting point in Thetis's history. Can you remind me time like the ages we're in we're talking about? Yeah, so there are three exalted marches that we're going to be talking about today. And all three of them are called over a period of about 60 years in the Storm Age, which as a reminder is the Seventh Age, which the Dragon Age is the Ninth Age. So these things didn't even happen 200 years ago. Like we think about this as maybe ancient history or or just history in general, but it's it's not. Um, it's very recent history, actually. Well, let's just dive right in. All right, let's go. So, like I said, these three exalted marches are called over the course of about 60 years. And we talked about this in our last lore episode, but they're called by both the Imperial and the Orlesian Chantries to stop the Cunari, which is super significant because the Orlesian and the Imperial Chantry, they hate each other like a lot. Um, just a few centuries prior, they were fighting each other and calling exalted marches against each other. And now they're united against the Cunari. So we're going to dive into each of these three exalted marches and, we're just going to find out what happens and and how they really do impact where DAD might be going. Wow. So I have just a couple I have just a couple fun facts today. Um 
first is that these three exalted marches against the Hunari are grouped together in history and they're referred to as the new exalted marches. And that's because they're the most recent exalted marches. Um, no official exalted march has been called since. And there is a pretty sizable gap between these exalted marches and all of the rest that came before. So they are the new exalted marches. And my next point um, is that during these exalted marches, supposedly Orlais stole the Tome of Coslin, which we also talked about a little bit last episode. Um, Kinari, y'all got to lock that thing up. Like, don't be parading around your, your religious relics and stuff, but. Uh, my last fun fact is that the third of the new exalted marches is known as the bloodiest and the most brutal battle of all of the exalted marches. That's interesting because, again, we kind of like see this paralleling at least Western history because the last official war that we've declared is World War II. And that is also considered one of the bloodiest in our history. Well, actually, the bloodiest war in our history is the Civil War. But yeah, I get your point. I think, yeah, I said one of. I, I knew the Civil War was the bloodiest. Okay, just making sure you know what's up. More people died in World War II. More Americans died in the Civil War. Yeah. So um, let's just dive right into the first exalted march. So the first of the new exalted marches was declared in 725 storm. And the goal of this exalted march was to reclaim Ravain, Saharan, and Quirinus, which is now known as Ventus. So the Orlesian Chantry is basically focusing on Ravain, while the Imperial Chantry is attempting to focus on Quirinus, which is a city on mainland Tevinter, and Saharan, which is the island that Bull, Iron Bull, worked on. So this exalted march is... The very first time that we know of in history that the Chantry utilized mages and mage like squadrons, whole mage units as fighters. So we, of course, see this happening from the get go in Dragon Age Origins at the Battle of Ostagar. But this is not something that is done throughout Theta's history, especially in the South. So this is actually a pretty new fighting tactic if it was first introduced in 725 Storm. Like I said, that's just a little bit more than 200 years prior to Dragon Age Origins. So actually, in the last episode, I'm not sure if you remember, but we talked about how the Cunari just had a lot of techn technological advances and they were just able to kind of sweep everyone by surprise and take them out really easily and, and all of that. But the mage fighters in this war kind of are what turn the tide a little bit on that because they are super successful in fighting the Cunari specifically. And of course, that's because the mages were able to counter the superior technology that the Cunari had with magic. So as you know, you know, Cunari absolutely hate magic and mm -hmm. are opposed to it. So it would mean obviously that their weaponry could potentially be weak to magic. And so that's exactly what happens in this exalted March. Right. And we actually know that this 
first exalted march was supremely successful for both the imperial chantry and the orlesian chantry and that they in fact accomplished all of their goals however there were some regular everyday people in Thetis who had converted to the Kune and they refused to return to Andraste's teaching. So there was a lot of resistance, like after the war was over of the Chantry, like really being able to reclaim the land in full, not just in name only. So I think this is a lot of what happens leading up to the second exalted march. This is a big reason why the second exalted march is called is not just to continue fighting the Kunari, but to push out these beliefs from their own lands too. It makes sense because like the Kune offers a certain amount of security for the people under the Kune. At least there's a sense of like, you know exactly what your role is. You know exactly what is expected of you. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. And as long as you don't deviate from that, you're probably going to live an okay life. You'll be fed. You'll have structure. Your basic needs will be met. And so I could see people, especially in Orlais, and where there's a lot in flux, there's a lot of class disparity and all kinds of things like that gravitating towards the Kune and then not wanting to go back when they finally do convert. Yeah, absolutely. Not just people who live in places of economic disparity, but I also would imagine people who live like on the outskirts in rural Thetis who don't have any support from their band or or from the divine or, or from whomever who are just kind of left out, hung out to dry. I would imagine that they would also find refuge in an organization that finds everyone equally important. Yeah. I also kind of want to go back and talk about magic in this fight. And I think that just want to talk tactically. Yes, Kinari, like mechanical and technological advantage would be weak to magic because they wouldn't be using magic to reinforce it because they hate magic. But I also think I would wonder if these mage squadrons kind of used the Kinari superstition about magic to their advantage, like to mm-hmm. ins- to break morale, to cause fear, to do all kinds of things like that. I mean, we see this in Bull a little bit. If you take him into the Fade, like, he is shaken by it. So there is a superstition and fear and just taboo surrounding magic that I wonder if they took advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. Okay, so let's get into the second Exalted March. So this one kind of bleeds into the first one. Um because we don't really know when the first exalted march like technically officially ended so there could be overlap here we just don't really know um but we do know that the second of the new exalted marches was officially called in 752 storm which is only 27 years after the first one was called so we also you know we we don't know why the first one ended or we don't know when the first one ended and we don't really know why the second one was called we just know that it was called if i personally had to guess why this second exalted march was called i would personally guess that it was because the imperial chantry and the orlesian chantry had since lost ground that they'd won during the new exalted march the first one Um, especially since we know that there are pockets of people who are dissatisfied with the Chantry and want to follow the Kuhn. I would imagine that there is some significant ground that they've lost 
over the last 20 plus years. That's my guess. That's not official canon lore, but that is my personal guess. But here's here's where the rubber meets the road. Unlike the first of the new Exalted Marches, the second one was a complete and utter disaster. The Kunari were able to capture almost the entirety of Antiva. And I'm assuming that also means that they've captured the entirety of Ravain since Antiva and Ravain are connected. Um, and we know now in current Theta's history, Ravain still has a huge pocket of Kunari strongholds. So I would imagine Ravain is included in that. So that whole little peninsula conquered by the Kunari, um, that's no longer Androstian period. So that all happens. Antiva and Ravain get conquered. The entire Exalted March is called and is over with in one year. Wow. So the fighting, the fighting doesn't even last for a whole year. It's all over and done with by the end of 752 Storm. So that's a really big deal. That's really significant. That shows you just how much of a failure this Exalted March is. Um, and so there are about three years from the end of this one to the beginning of the third Exalted March. But before we get into the third of this, these new Exalted Marches, I want to talk about some stuff that happens in between. Because, of course, you might imagine there are some things that do happen in that time period. Everybody's not just laying low, hiding in the deep roads. They're fighting still. And unfortunately, we don't really know how much happens in between the first and second. Um, but we do know a few things about in between the second and third. So in 754, which is two years after the second Exalted March, the Cunari land in Estwatch, which is an island, and it's off the coast of the Free Marches, and it's in the Amaranthine Ocean. So it is an island that has passed through a bunch of different hands and has pretty much found itself being owned or allied to every country in the area so like every country wants this island because it's so important defensively and if you look at a map of thetis it's off the coast of ferelden the free marches antiva ravain like they can all get it they can all get to it pretty easily and even honestly orlay too so it's important defensively and if the Cunari capture it, which they have at this point in time, it would be really easy for them to launch an attack against any or all of those countries that are over there. So we're pretty much talking about all of Eastern Thetis at this point. So, like I said, in this age, the Storm Age, the Cunari capture this island and they begin to use it as a naval base and a launching point for their fleet. Wow. This island very much reminds me of like the Israel-Palestine area and like it's strategic like if you want to know why that area is conquered so much in like our history is because it's a very quick transitional area between asia and africa um, mm -hmm. and so these different empires would come and do that because it made their trade easier and so they would come in and conquer that and it's not exactly the same but it's a similar situation that like like, so if Ferelden wanted to invade and try to conquer the free marches, they would need this island because it would probably be like the Cunari here are a staging point to get supplies and move across. And so it's very, it's just reminded me of that. Yeah, no, you're right. It's very important. It's, it's kind of like if you wanted 
to, okay, here's a great example. Here's another one. If you wanted to attack the United States and Jamaica and Haiti and Cuba and all of the places in the Caribbean and maybe even go on over to Mexico too, you should take Key West. Yeah. So anyway, that's the kind of situation we're talking about here with Estwatch. But in about a year later in 755 storm, Raiders from the island of Lamarin unite and they join the chantries to fight against the Cunari, specifically at sea. These um, raiders are pirates, of course, and they sail under the banner of the Felicissima Armada. And they're a famed pirate company still to this day, to the Dragon Age. And if you remember, this is the group that Isabella is allied with. Oh. I did not know that. Yes. So, and we'll get into more about them later. And I'm sure you can guess that I'm already setting you up for the third Exalted March in this series to be very much at sea. But first, we need to get into our mid-break. All right. Well, let's go to it. Ah, Hawk stepped in the poopy. I love you. Want a sandwich? All this for me. No, I didn't get Alexius anything. Send him a fruit basket. Everyone loves those. So welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things that have to do with the podcast, but not the lore of Dragon Age. And so it's here where we thank our patrons. Thank you to all of our amazing patrons who support us. Special thank yous to Lisa M and Genesis as our first patrons. Special thank you to our divine tier patron kit. And a very, very special thank you to the one and only Nug King, Lewis H. If you want to join the Patreon to come on the show, you need to sign up at the first enchanter tier or higher to get to come on the show you can also sign up at the lower tiers to get access to special channels in our discord to get merch too if you sign up with stickers our first rounds of stickers i believe are now all delivered and they've been sent out and that second one is coming in a couple months in two months and so yeah just get if you sign up before that, you if by the time we send out stickers, if you've signed up for Patreon at our Antiven Crow tier, you will get that sticker. So if you can't support us financially, there are lots of ways to come and support the show. One of them is to join our Discord, The Cups Podcasting and More, where you can come and hang out with us and talk about Dragon Age or other shows or anything that The Cups Podcasting does. Uh, you can share pictures of your pets. We do that all the time. And then another way to support us is to leave us ratings and reviews. You can do that on Apple or Spotify. And if you leave us five stars and some kind words, we will read it out on a future episode of the show. And I believe we have a comment from Spotify to read the day. We do. Um, so this one comes from Stormblessed, and they commented on our Cunari Wars episode part one and said, amazing episode, folks. My question is this. From where or when do the Cunari gain their technological advantage? Is it a relic of the Kossuth, their masters and not their racial precursors? That is such a great question. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, we don't really know. Um, I hate when that's the lore answer, but it kind of is. My my personal guess and thought behind it is that it comes from their 
kind of like gunpowder technology, um, Kamek and GAT, all of that um, kind of, I think, fuels their technological advances. So I think them having their hands on those substances perhaps give them an edge over everyone else. I know that's not a full answer to your question, but that's probably as good as we're going to get right now until we get more lore, hopefully, in DAD. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I do have another theory that might be plausible. It might just be that they discovered this out of necessity. I mean, you have to remember that Ferelden, Taventer, and Orlais heavily rely on magic to basically enhance their lifestyles, whether that's through the use of Lyrium with the Templars or other mages that come and help build things or do lots of stuff going on there. Whereas the Cunari do not. Like magic is not widely used under the Cune. And so if we look at the cultures that don't really use magic, which would be the dwarfs and the Cunari, both of them have very creative ways of either using magic or lyrium or creating technological advances to kind of split that gap. Yeah, good point. Well, let's get back into the show. Yeah, let's go. You're looking for titsicles. Oh, that's good. Yes, and it's a real nice night for an evening. Um... <laughs> oh, you fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. All right, so let's dive into this third Exalted March. This is really where the drama happens. This is where the biggest battles are that we know about. So the third and final of the new Exalted Marches is called in 755 Storm, and it will last until 784 Storm, which is almost 30 years. This is also the longest of these three Exalted Marches. So at this point, by the end of this Exalted March, we will have had almost 60 years of fighting the Cunari. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, in this third exalted march, the Chantries have a huge wall of resistance in the Cunari. Remember that the Cunari have taken much of Tevinter and all of Antiva and Ravain, and they're now working on conquering the Free Marches. And they hit the Free Marches hard because they have access to this island of Estwatch. So specifically in 756 Storm, they attempt to conquer Starkhaven, Ostwick, and Kirkwall. Starkhaven and Ostwick are able to repel them, but as you may have guessed or may remember from DA2, Kirkwall is not. So Kirkwall is then invaded for the first time by the Cunari, which is why in Dragon Age 2, we hear them refer to Act 2 with the Cunari invasion as the second invasion of Kirkwall, because it is. The Cunari have done this before. So it takes four years um, of occupation by the Cunari before Kirkwall is liberated, which I think also can help you understand why they see Hawk as such a champion, because Hawk is like, they invade and Hawk is able to defeat the Aeroshock and have it all over and done with in a day or, or a couple of days, you know, versus Oh, the last time this happened, it was four years. So I guess that kind of illustrates how much more the people of Kirkwall would see Hawk as a hero. Yeah, totally. Um, and how much and why there's so much 
bitterness between the everyday citizens of Kirkwall and the Cunari. Uh, mm-hmm. Just more history kind of going there. It's not, it is because they're racist, but it's also, there's a more going on than only that. So Kirkwall is actually liberated by a famous Orlesian Chevalier, and his name is Sir Michel LaFile. And he actually later becomes Kirkwall's first Viscount, and Kirkwall then falls under Orlesian control. So, yeah, I guess your previous comment before we were recording, Austin, about, or earlier, about uh, Kirkwall being ruled by everyone is a little bit accurate. I think the only ones that maybe have not been ruled uh, or that they haven't been ruled by are like Navarra and Antiva and countries that are not like major colonizing and conquering forces. Right, right. So in 775 Storm, the Battle of Afsana occurs. And this is one of the very few battles we know about that actually occurred in territory that the Kunari were in control of. Afsana is a city in Ravane, and so this battle happens there. Unfortunately, we don't really know much about this battle other than the fact that it happened and where it happened at, um, but we do know that it was a pretty big battle of the this Exalted March. So in 778 Storm, the Philosissima Armada, who are the pirates, um, of Thetis, they are intentionally destroying Cunari supply lines. And this, of course, weakens them. They've been doing this for a while, and a lot of different people unite under under their banner and kind of all come together and are giving one big push to take Estwatch, the island, um, that had been serving as the Cunari naval base. And so they are able, actually, to take this island and... It's a huge, huge battle. It's really the turning point um, of this war. I don't think without this, without taking Estwatch, that anything else would have happened. The Cunari would have just been able to kind of take over the rest of Thetis. But in 784 Storm, this is when this Exalted March officially ends, which is six years after this huge battle over Estwatch. And... Actually, this exalted march ends with a stalemate, and it's been over 60 or almost 60 years of fighting, and neither side has outright won. So you can kind of imagine, like, if the Cunari hadn't hadn't lost Estwatch, how easily they really probably would have been able to just conquer the rest of Thetis. But uh, by this time, so much of northern Thetis is just in complete and utter ruin. It's been over half a century of fighting, as you can imagine how the lands and cities would just be totally destroyed and devastated. But eventually a meeting occurs between the Cunari and all nations in Thetis except for Tevinter. This meeting will be where the Lamarin Accords are signed which we'll discuss in a few minutes. But the Lamarin Accords are the official end of this war. And it's important to note, Tevinter is not there. So put that in your back pocket. So that's those are the three exalted marches. Those are all the battles. Those are all the conflicts we know about. Do you have thoughts before we kind of get into the aftermath? Not a lot of thoughts, just that when it comes to like the second exalted march, just that that one seemed kind of stupid to me. 
just because it's so quick after well i guess we don't really know how long it is between the first and second but it just seems that you know they have such a decisive victory in the first exalted march i just feel like they kind of just like didn't check that hey can we do this again no we don't have the supplies to do this again whereas potentially like they don't really know what's going on on the island of Parvalin in the land of Parvalin. Like the Kunari could have reinf- could get reinforcements. I, at this point, I don't think they know just how many Kunari are in Parvalin or have the true strength of their forces. And so it just seemed that Chantry just the Chantries just got too big for their britches for the land they wanted back and didn't really think of can we do this? The Chantry is Chantrying again. <laughs> Yes. Chantry and a chantry. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I agree with that completely. And I do think it's very short-sighted of them to kind of launch that second exalted march because, like, I mean, the reason they do it is theological. It's not really political. Um, so I agree with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It kind of just opened this whole thing back up again, which, you know, and you know, it, it, you don't know, you don't ever know how that's going to work out. But I think the thing that sticks out to me is your statement that, like, they don't know the true size of the Cunari. They don't know their true strength. And I honestly, I think that that is applicable to modern day Thetis as well. I think most people in Thetis vastly underestimate the Cunari and underestimate their numbers except for maybe the people in Kirkwall and the people in Taventer but I think the rest of Thetis is in that very same place right and I think that one thing that we haven't really talked about in these exalted marches is the Ben Hasrith as far as spy networks go they're a pretty good one like I know the Bards of Orlais are a well-established spy network but they're so busy spying on each other and spying on Ferelden and maybe Tevinter that they're not even looking at the Kinari. and mm-hmm. plus but like the Ben Hasrith are everywhere true and also like the differences with the bards like they're individuals they don't have a governing body that organizes them and collects all of their information they are just themselves whereas the ben hasrath do but at the same time you know we don't know if the ben hasrath even exists at this point we don't know we barely know anything about cunari lore so we don't know how long those kind of the triumvirate we don't know how the cunari structure how long it's even existed so that may not have been a thing during these exalted marches right i mean it's just it's such an unknown enemy orlay to venture and ferelden and all of southern thetis are just lucky that they still exist at all yes which we'll get into now so um the kunari do have one stronghold left in thetis um i would argue they have two but one we just don't know anything about um there is a kunari colony of some sort over in the anderfells it's but we don't really know anything about it so i'm not including it for now but in ravain there's the city of kantar which is a major Cunari settlement um, and fortress. And it was allowed to stay after the treaty, the Lamaran Accords. And that's because the Chantries felt that rebuilding was more important at that point um, than continuing to fight the Cunari and drive them out. So 
that one's allowed to stay, which is interesting. Um, but let's get into the Cunari's kind of thoughts and modes and, and motivations for leaving and quote unquote retreating. So they, they don't retreat because their armies are suffering. They don't retreat because they can't fight anymore. They fight or they retreat because their city, their stronghold of Kantar in Ravain and, and the people of this city have been decimated. I do find this pretty interesting. Um, and an important note for some of the upcoming conflicts with the Cunari in Dragon Age. Um, so it also is interesting to me because there's a quote. I don't remember where it's from, but it's out there somewhere. I should have done my research to kind of figure out where it's from, but it just was too difficult for me um, to, to find it after like 20 minutes of searching. But there's a quote about, I think it's from the comics. Somebody says something to the extent of, Nobody really knows why the Cunari disappeared, basically, after these exalted marches. They don't know why they retreated, but the Cunari know why they retreated, and the Cunari will come back, and you'll never be expecting it. Right. And this brings up a point of that I just want to talk about. We are told by Varric, so we'll take that with the Varric grain of salt of He's a pretty reliable narrator for the most part, but we do know that he can over embellish or spread outright lies just to sway public opinion one way. And so he tells us that after the Kirkwall incident with the Kunari, not the Kirkwall incident of the Chantry blowing up, after that, the Aeroshock, which I assume is Sten at this point, the new one, like officially denounces the Aeroshock that's in Kirkwall. And they just denounce the whole thing. And Varric says it's because they're afraid of another exalted march on the Chantry. And so this brings up two things for me. Either that's just a lie that Varric is telling us. And there's another reason why they didn't want to get into this. Or something happened that we don't know about. Something happened behind the scene. The Chantry had some kind of threat. Maybe, maybe there was something going on with the Sarabases and being in Southern Thetis and all this exposure was causing them to become corrupted and the Cunari thought being in here was too dangerous for their society. But like, that's just an example. But I feel like there's so much unknown and no one was in really in the room where it happened. If it's true that they're terrified of another exalted march from Orlay, Orlay has to have a trump card on them because all the ev historical evidence we see posts to that if the Cunari did invade again, odds are Thetis like would become all Cune. Yes and no. I think I mean, I don't know if I believe that, that the Cunari are actually afraid of another exalted march. Like, I don't think they're terrified of that. I think they just don't want the headache because it, it would be a huge war and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be what it was the first time where they would just be able to kind of take everyone unprepared because most people in Thetis, like they know what Cunari are now, like they know how to fight them or at least a little bit. Um, armies have fought them before. So I think. Part of it is just they know it would be a huge hassle and they know that 
it would be a major major battle. And so I don't think they want that headache. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you're right that the issue here is that we just don't know enough. We don't really know much about Kunari lore. And that's something I'm really looking forward to and hoping we get more of in Dragon Age Shredwolf. Yeah. Well, let's get into my last thing that I wanted to talk about with the aftermath of this exalted or these three exalted marches, which is the effects of the Lamarin Accords. So, like I said, the last of the new exalted marches end with the signing of the Lamarin Accords, which are a peace treaty. And um, the peace treaty would later become known as the Lamarin Accords because that is where they were signed. Uh, Lamarin is a neutral island. And so everyone kind of gathered there to sign this peace treaty. Like I said earlier, every single country of Thetis except for Tevinter was represented. As a result of signing these this peace treaty, the Cunari agreed to leave the mainland and they received the island of Parvalan to the north in exchange. They agreed to cease all hostilities, all battles, and all conflict against the mainland. Because Tevinter was the only nation not to sign the Lamarin Accords, the Cunari are able to conquer and fight there without any repercussions whatsoever. This is why there's fighting there today. I wonder, this is making wheels turn in my head. I wonder mm -hmm. if the Emperor of Orle, the Divine at the time, I wonder if they intentionally did not invite Tevinter because they thought they could let their enemies destroy themselves. I think it's absolutely possible. I also could see Tevinter being too arrogant to go and sign a peace treaty. Right, right. And I get that, but we don't... We, I'm more inclined to the first option that we said, because we know that Tevinter is not, like, too proud to sign peace treaties. They're not too proud to concede, like, hey, this isn't good for our society. Let's do this. But, like, if it's true that we weren't invited, like, this, if I was a Tevinter person, and I found this out that we weren't invited to this peace treaty scene, like peace treaty signing, and this just allows the Cune to invade us, whatever. I would never send help to Southern Thetis ever again. Even when it impacted you? Yeah. I think that's short-sighted, but we don't know if they weren't invited or they just didn't go. We don't have that information in the lore. We just know that they weren't right. there. So I don't want people to get confused, but I did just to close out this episode before we get into our side character, I did bring a quote from the codex. Um, and specifically, this is the, the codex, the Lamarin Accords. And I just felt like this was an interesting way to close it up. And you can kind of give your thoughts on this codex entry if you have them. So it says this. It's worth noting, however, that the kingdom of Ravain immediately violated the treaty twice. Once when the humans of northern Ravain, nearly all practitioners of the Kune, and therefore by definition, Kunari, refused to leave their homes and go in exile to the islands. 
And again, when the Ravain Chantry and nationalist forces were unable to convert its people back to the worship of the Maker, tried a purge by the sword, slaughtering countless unarmed people and burying them in mass graves. It's a fortunate mystery that the leaders in Kantar, the Kunari leaders in Kantar, did not alert their allies in the Northern Passage or we'd still be fighting the giants now, end quote. This is just, this is feeding more fire on my theory that Orle <laughs> and the rest of them have some trump card on the Kinari. Like, it's enough in Kirkwall to just be in Kirkwall and experience the depravity for the Aeroshock to basically say, we need to purge this city. You're telling me that the Cunari with one of the best spy networks, if the Ben Hasrith are around, didn't know this was happening? No, I, I don't believe that. Well, I think you can make the argument that the... Perhaps the Cunari leaders were um, killed in kind of this purge um, during this the storm age. And so they weren't able to go back to their leaders, not that they didn't or didn't do anything about this. Right. It's very interesting, but it's also interesting because the Ravain Chantry is known for being one of the most laid back chantries. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones who effectively commit a genocide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the ones that violate the treaty first. Like, yeah, that was so interesting to me that it's like, you're supposed to be like the open-minded, the like hippie kind of chantry and then you go and do this but at the end of the day i do think it makes sense because if there's one thing the chantry hates more than blood magic and tabenter it's the cunari and if there's one thing that the cunari hate most it's magic and so i think it would make sense for a chantry in ravine where there lacks against magic to be the opposite against basically the the biggest enemy of magic that exists in Thetis, the Kunari. I have a I just have a lot of going around in my brain right now. <laughs> it's really making me wonder what's going on, what's going to be going on in DAD because like we've said before, there's just too many conflicts going on at once in Thetis. Yep. The only country I feel like that's not in conflict is Ferelden, and that's because they are recovering from the blight. Are we going to get all these conflicts happening at once in DAD? Are we going to time skip and be like, oh yeah, this got resolved because it was this and this and this? Who knows? We don't know. All we can do is wait at this point. But let's get into our side character. Um, our side character today is a Kunari. I really wanted to continue this trend of talking about a Kunari side character when we're talking about the Kunari. So today we are talking, last time we talked about Gat, who, as you know, is an elf. Um, today we're talking about Rasan, who is not a convert to the Kun. And she appears in the Those Who Speak comic and in Tevinter Nights. And she's significant because she's the second of 
uh, four female Kunari characters that we've met in total. So the first is Talus, and then we have Rasan, then we have the Vitasala, and then fourth we have Quidian. So there are four in total, um, excluding the Inquisitor because that's variable. Mm-hmm. But Rasan is a Tamasran, and remember that they are the female branch of the Kunari priesthood, and they're ruled by the Ericune, and basically they essentially rule Kunari society. So they're responsible for who deciding who gets married to each other, who has children with someone else. They name the children, they raise the children, they teach the children, they assign all the children their roles as adults. They look after Kunari who are disabled and a whole heck of a lot more. Um, but Rasan personally serves the Ericune, who is one of the three leaders of the Kunari Triumvirate, along with the Arashok and the Aragena. She was chosen a long time ago as the Ericune's successor. That's why her name is Rasan instead of Tamasran. So Rasan can actually be translated to chosen heir or emissary. So one of her duties includes traveling alongside the Arashok on expeditions, and she advises him during this time. So while the Arashok was stranded in Kirkwall and unwilling to call from aid from Parvalin, Rasan was stranded in the Kunari city of Kunandar, unable to perform her duties. The new Arashok that was chosen in 934 Dragon, who is Sten, Rasan has been at his side almost constantly. She was most recently seen in the fortress of Akaz in Saharan, where the Arashok was said to be amassing a force of dreadnoughts. So... In Those Who Speak, Rasan is aboard one of the Kunari dreadnoughts that are attacking Isabella's ship on its way to Saharan. Rasan gives orders to take the enemies as prisoners. She then interrogates Isabella on Saharan. So this scene in the comics is um pretty interesting. But essentially what happens is Rasan asks Isabella if she knows what the Kamek is. And when Isabella is like, no, I don't know what that is. Rasan reiterates and tells Isabella that the Kamek is used to free, quote unquote, men and women who are beyond redemption and that Isabella will submit to her one way or another as well. Rasan then asks Isabella to reveal her true name, and when she refuses, Rasan reminds her of all of the many crimes that she's committed against the Kunari, and that were they human, Isabella would have been executed. In between demanding Isabella's real name, Rasan continues to probe Isabella about her past and how she came to be the person she is. And Rasan continues to try to get Isabella to convert to the Kune and take the Kamek and basically erase all of her memories. But Isabella is enraged by this and she absolutely refuses. Ultimately, she's able to escape, but Rasan does catch up with her and they fight again. And at the end of the fight, Isabella wins the fight, but she doesn't kill Rasan. She spares her and lets her go. So that's kind of the whole scene in Those Who Speak. And so we see Rasan as a person who is very interested with converting people to the Kune. She's very 
very interested, especially in converting Isabella to the Kuhn and getting her to basically like repent for stealing the Tome of Coslin. Mm. So she also appears in Tevinter Nights and she's, we see her specifically in the chapter Genitivi dies in the end. And so Rasan is in search of Fenharel's true name. And so she travels to an ancient elven library, quote unquote library, that quote unquote fell into the deep roads when Arlathon fell, supposedly. I'm not sure I believe that, but that's what the chapter says. Um, but she finds Brother Genitivi, Philium, a bard, and formerly Sister Laudine already there at this library. She captures and questions all of them about their true names, and she reveals that her Antom is in Tevinter as well, unofficially. During all of these interrogations, Sister Laudine accidentally reveals herself as a mage, which then enables the humans to escape, and Rassan begins chasing them all the way across the Silent Plains, but is unable to catch her, or to catch them. So to hide from her, the three scholars start circulating false, quote-unquote, false accounts of their demise and their deaths once they arrive in Ravane. So we don't really know if any of these three people are dead or alive, um, but we do know that Rasan once again, is a very, very, very concerned with people's real names, with Isabella's real name, with Fenharel's real name, and now with Brother Genitivi, Philium, and Sister Laudine's real names as well. So to quote her just a little bit, I have one quote from her, and this is from the comics, I do believe. And she says this, the Kuhn tells us to call a thing by its name is to know its reason in the world. To call a thing falsely is to put out one's own eyes. We have names and they're chosen carefully, end quote. I think this kind of sums up her character well. She's a character who's very, very in interested and fascinated by your real name. She wants to know Isabella's, the Bards, and Solus's. Why do you think this is? So, you know, my first thought process goes to the Inheritance Cycle, the Aragon books, which yeah, is... Yeah, I knew you were going to bring that up. To know someone's true name gives you completely complete and utter control over that person. Like you can force them to do whatever you want. And like, that's part of the lore, you know, like in just other fantasy worlds, like, you know, you're not supposed to the Fae, to the fairies, you're not supposed to give your true name. You're not supposed to give who mm -hmm. you are or anything. Cause it gives them a certain amount of control. So I think it's more philosophical for her than it is magical. It's a thing of like knowing who a person is and who they truly are to her gives an understanding to name the thing gives understanding, gives power, mm -hmm. gives control. But it's also interesting to the point of like wanting to know Finn Harrell's name because we know that according to Solus and the Dreadwolf is a title. It's not his name. And maybe Finn Harrell is not his name. Because it's Finn Harrell the Dreadwolf. So maybe it is his name. Maybe it's not. Maybe mm -hmm. all the gods' names are titles. So who Yeah, knows? we don't know. That's that's my thought on why she wants to know this. I think it's more philosophical than it is for some like magical purpose. 
That's interesting. I think Rasan is an interesting character. Um, I think she is a character that has the potential to come back. I know that's kind of like our new question we answer. Um, I think she could definitely be an antagonist. Yes, I I do think that is a possibility. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got today. So unless you have anything else you want to add about the Kunari or Rasan, we can kind of wrap it up. No, that's all I got. Just a special thank you to our Nug King patron, Louis H., who gets a special thank you at the end of the show. And thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet. You can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful. Here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.